I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello, everybody. So we are talking about siblings again this round, and I'm so excited to introduce my next guest to you. She's awesome. She has so much energy, and I just loved talking to her. There is a program that our local Birth to Three Center Kindering offers, and it's called Sib Shops. It is such a cool and very important program for the siblings of kids with rare disease and disability. One of our main goals as parents is to not screw it up. And I think that's easier said than done. Kids are so wise, and I don't think they get enough credit for it. They can feel our stress, our anxiety, our anger, our love, our joy. Some kids might react well, others might just tuck it away for later. I have so much to learn on the matter, and making sure my daughter Esme doesn't feel like she's left in the dust, knowing that there are these sip shops brings me so much comfort in knowing that she can go to a place and be with other kids who understand her family life. This is bigger than what Casey and I can do as parents alone, and we need to offer her opportunities to get connection without us, too. I hope to explore this topic many times throughout the podcast, but let's just go ahead and get started for today. Here is the amazing Emily Hall. Hi, Emily. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Everybody's still pretty sick in my house. Hopefully you had a little bit more luck than we did. Oh, it's going around. I'm sorry. My goodness. It's lasting. Anyways. It's the season, right? <laughs> I know. Seriously. Thanks for thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited to chat about the sibling perspective and what kind of supports are available. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me and for thinking of siblings. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I have just put another one onto the planet for Ford. So I have <laughs> so many questions and so many concerns. And I'm so glad you're out there doing what you're doing. And Thank you. now I have your phone number and your email, so watch out. <laughs> Use them anytime. <laughs> and congratulations. Thank you. So why don't you just start by telling me a little bit how the universe brought you to the field of sibling support? Sure. The short answer is that I myself am a sibling. I have an older brother named Peter, and he has an intellectual disability and he really is at the center of many of my personal and professional decisions. And I'm really grateful to him because if it weren't for him, I wouldn't be doing this, this work that I love so much. And I wouldn't have met so many other incredible siblings who I think just in general uh, are pretty special people and have a lot of insight and wisdom to share. So I, you know, I'm just really grateful to him for that. And he's also a pretty, he's a pretty cool guy. Don't tell him I said that, but <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> his head will get even bigger, but he's a pretty good dude. I read a really beautiful essay that you wrote, and there was a part in there where you were talking about Peter, and you had just broken up with one of your boyfriends, and he had made this funny picture and had <laughs> been like, haha, bye, sucker, your boyfriend's history. And I was laughing so hard because I'm pretty sure every one of my brothers has said that to me. 
Yes. Yeah, that was an essay that I wrote for a book called Thicker Than Water, which is a collection of essays by adult siblings of people with disabilities. And I write about sort of the, I guess, what can be the kind of a unique perspective that siblings often have in finding a life partner, which of course starts with that terrible period of early dating, right? Which I think is just pretty awful for all of us. And when you have a, uh, a brother or a sister who's a little bit different, who you might already be thinking of as kind of a, a package deal with you in the future, uh, which believe it or not, even young siblings, even teenagers start to think about these things. Dating can take on a whole new twisty, turny kind of experience, which is, you know, in addition to all of the usual challenges and exciting things about dating can can kind of add to that. So my essay was about sort of finding a life partner and all of the things that I certainly considered as a sibling in relation to that and to having a brother who you know, most certainly will be in my life in a very big way for uh, for as long as we are on the earth together. So yeah, so important. I know you can get it on Amazon. Is there anywhere else that we can direct people if they want to purchase this book? Um, I think Amazon is probably the best bet. The publisher, I believe, is Woodbine House. So they should also have some copies available. Okay. Yeah, we could do an entire episode of dating. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Whole other <yes>. podcast. <laughs> That is, yes, we will need a whole podcast for yes, that Yes, for sure. <laughs> okay, so how did this bring you into the sib shops? Did you join a sib shop yourself when you were young? No, you know, it, it's funny. One thing that I hear a lot, I travel, I do a lot of travel, and I'm sure we'll talk about sib shops and trainings and all that great stuff. I have the pleasure of meeting so many other adult siblings, and whenever they say, gosh, I wish I had sib shops when I was a kid... I echo that exact sentiment because I certainly do wish that I had sib shops as a as a kid. I didn't discover sib shops until much later, until I was a young-ish professional working in the disability field. I was working in New York City at a very large uh, disability service provider, and um, I was working actually in their conferences and communications uh, department. I sort of worked my way into social work. I couldn't stay away. I kind of found my way into more direct helping, but I, I started started out uh, with conferences and communications, and a colleague of mine had found this sib shop facilitator training by a guy called Don Meyer, and she thought it would be a really great idea for us to attend. And so we did, and that was uh, in New York in, gosh, it must have been 2006, probably. So just about 14 years ago, if my math is correct. And I attended that training, and it really changed my life because I not only realized that, wow, there's this whole person and organization dedicated to supporting brothers and sisters like myself, But I was able to, through that training, really understand my own sibling experience in a much broader context and and recognize that my experience was really one that many elements of it were shared by so many other brothers and sisters. And so that was really, really gratifying. And from that point on, it really just inspired me to do everything I could to start um, to create sibling supports for the families that we were working with in New York City. So that's kind of how it started. 
luckily I was able to sort of keep in touch with Don over the years and he was the editor of that book I just mentioned that, that you had read that essay from Thicker Than Water. We were able to co-edit a book together called The Sibling Survival Guide which is kind of a one-stop shopping for all things sibling because we realized that there really wasn't any kind of guide for siblings to learn about you know not only the issues that are important to siblings in childhood and so that other siblings could put their own experience into a broader context, but things like planning for the future and learning about the service and support system and funding streams and all of those things, which can be really, really daunting for siblings who are either maybe just curious, maybe their role in their family is changing and they're finding themselves suddenly in a position of taking on more uh, support responsibility for their brothers or sisters. Maybe parents are aging or passing on. And so a lot of siblings, adult siblings, we find ourselves in this situation of having to learn a lot very quickly to be able to provide the kind of support that our parents have traditionally provided. That's happening broadly, really throughout the field. For the first time, people with disabilities are outliving their parents at rates that that we had not anticipated. And so siblings are increasingly stepping in as caregivers, and I think many of us are largely unprepared. And so that's kind of what we were trying to accomplish with the Sibling Survival Guide, was to give brothers and sisters a resource where they could learn enough about enough different things that they would have a starting point and certainly at the very least know that they're not alone. Wow. And that book is also available on Amazon, correct? It is. Yes. The Sibling Survival Guide. Wow. I didn't even go to the part of where I would even imagine my child as an adult not really knowing what to do if they had to take over because you do it all yourself as parents. And of course, you don't necessarily pass on all of the stuff that you have to do to take care of this child. And of course, you're unprepared. Yes. And, you know, I think especially for parents like yourself, parents of young children, I think it can be really daunting to consider the future and to consider a time in the family's life when we as parents are no longer able to care for our children in the way that we traditionally have. And I think for really the best reasons and with the best intentions, parents often don't share information with their typically developing children, with their non-diagnosed children. Well, we plan to live forever. That's mostly why. Yes, that is, you know, it's funny. I mean, I I really have met so many parents and that honestly is their solution to future planning (laughs) that they are just simply going to live forever. And, and, you know, and the siblings were sort of in the corner going, "Mm, I'm not sure that that's the most realistic plan. And maybe we could have a discussion as a family about what could happen if that doesn't really work out the way you're hoping it will. And so we always encourage parents, even even parents of young children, to just keep that door open, that, that door of communication open, so that when the time does come to start talking about future planning, it's not uncharted territory. It's not a taboo subject that, we've, that we haven't discussed as a family. It's part of our daily life with whoever the family member is who has the disability. It's part of the deal. And so communication can go a really long way. Even if parents don't have answers, I think a lot of times parents are terrified to broach the topic, not only because they don't want to burden their other children. And when I say other, I really do mean the typically developing siblings. You know, you you might not want to burden your other children with thoughts of future caregiving. And, you know, this is your responsibility as parents. But I think what many parents don't realize is that 
siblings, even young siblings, are already thinking about the future. They are already thinking about what's going to happen down the road. Where is my brother or sister going to live when they're grown up? What are they going to do during the day? How are they going to have money? And so I think that just making that an okay topic to discuss is really an important way that parents can support uh, their, their typically developing kids. That's a really good reminder. And obviously to use age appropriate forms of communication, but to start young, I probably wouldn't have really thought about that until I've been kind of thinking about this sibling stuff a little more and hearing from you and reading your stuff. So thank you for that reminder. Yeah, thank you. So why don't we just jump into what you do now? How did you leave New York and enter the world of something called Sib Shops? How did I escape New York? <laughs> I'm kidding. I miss New York. Um, it's such a it's such an amazing place to live, um, particularly in your 20s and 30s, which is when I was there. So it was great. So we uh, eventually moved uh, for jobs. Um, that's sort of the, the short story. And we wound up on the West Coast when... Don Meyer retired a couple of years ago. There was a national search for this position and a couple of rounds of interviews and flights. Uh, I was I was the very lucky person who was honored to be offered the position. And, and so we packed up my family, my husband, our two young boys. We packed up and moved to the Seattle area where the Sibling Support Project was founded in 1990. And that's how we got here. I feel like I have to give a little bit of history just to provide some context for where sibling supports started and kind of where they're at now. And I'll I'll do the abridged version so that we're not here for too long. I like to joke (laughs) at some of my trainings, we'll spend the next hour talking about history and people's faces (laughs) change very rapidly. And I I apologize and say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. (laughs) But I do think it's important to talk about a little bit about history because we know that there's a long history of self-advocacy and parent advocacy in the United States. And rightfully so, we really have self-advocates and parent advocates to thank for the creation of many of the services and supports, disability services and supports that exist today. And for many of the laws that support those services and supports and reinforce them. So as it turns out, there's also a history, I think a lesser known history of sibling advocacy and sibling support. And that really does start with Don Meyer, who started the Sibling Support Project, as I mentioned, in 1990, but he, before even the Sibling Support Project was an official thing, Don created this thing called a Sib Shop. And the Sib Shop is really central to the work that we do today and to the support that thousands and thousands of siblings receive um, across the country and now around the world. And Don actually started when he was a graduate student of special education at the University of Washington. And he was challenged by a professor to think about how a disability impacts not just the child with the diagnosis and not just the person who's typically taking that child to doctor's appointments, which is, if we're really honest, it's mom, right? Moms do a lot of the heavy lifting. But he and his colleagues started to think about how a disability impacts other family members, including fathers. And I, I believe you talked with um, Louis Mendoza, who directs the Fathers Network at Kindering. And that Fathers Network was really started around the same time as the Sib Shop was created. The sibling supports have really taken off the way they have is because we recognize that siblings experience many of the same issues as parents 
but have many fewer opportunities for support. And so that's really at the center of our efforts to support brothers and sisters, because we know that so many of the issues they face are similar to those that parents face, uh, as well as siblings certainly have some unique concerns of their own. And so, you know, when Don was researching the sibling supports that were available at that time, which was like late 1970s, early 1980s, what he read about in the literature was like a circle of folding chairs with a, a therapist and little siblings sitting in those folding chairs, young kids, with a box of tissues. And that did not really speak to the 11-year-old and Don. He didn't think that sounded like <laughs> much fun. And so really uh, fundamental to the sib shop model is providing information and support to young brothers and sisters, but in a highly recreational setting. And so fun is really the forefront of everything that we do in sib shops. And so we travel around the country and when we're really lucky we get to travel outside of the country and we get to train organizations children's hospitals disability service providers parks and rec departments schools really any place you might find children who might have brothers and sisters with disabilities we train these organizations on how to support these young kids in a way that's meaningful and fun and really speaks to kids well, thank you for that history lesson. Don Myers is the man. I really appreciate it. And how amazing that he started this research in the 70s. Yeah, it's it's really incredible when you think about what the landscape of disability services even looked like at that point. I mean, if special any. education law was just starting. Schools and um, school districts and professionals were really starting to sort of kind of scramble to figure out, you know, the best way to support kids with disabilities in the community. And what a perfect time to think about supporting families and in that definition of family to certainly include siblings, which unfortunately, I mean, I think still is something that we really need to work on because we, you know, we work with so many different organizations and they have very robust family support programs. And when you look at what those programs entail, you realize that the the functional definition of family is really parents, right? Like these are mostly the people who are being supported and rightfully so. Parents need all the support that we can offer and so do siblings. Absolutely. I don't really see as much support for siblings like online through social media as I do about parents. You're right. Right. Yeah. So we're, so, we're working to change that. So Emily, how do organizations or schools or different programs around the country get a hold of you to organize a sib shop? And what does that mean exactly? First of all, we're always grateful when organizations find us and say, gosh, we are noticing that we're doing great work with kids with disabilities. We're doing really great work with parents, but we're kind of noticing that the siblings are left out and we'd like to change that. And so a lot of times people will research the sib shop model and they will get in touch with us and, and they'll want to learn more about it. Or they have seen a, a sib shop at another organization and they have just fallen in love with the model and observed how much fun the kids have and how much fun the facilitators have and they want to recreate that. And so we have a website and it's just www.siblingsupport.org. So siblingsupport.org. And there's a lot of information there. We're in the process of redoing our website sprucing it up a bit, but there's a lot of information there about the sib shop model and how to start a sib shop. 
Again, any place that works with kids is a great place to host a sib shop. And the first step is really to become certified as a first generation sib shop facilitator. So by attending one of our two-day trainings, and, and all of our upcoming confirmed trainings are listed on our website under upcoming events. Okay. So people get certified to be trainers. And then how long do the sib shops go? Is this something like once a week that the kids go to or the adults also? Or is it sort of like a summer camp situation? So pe people get certified to become facilitators. And we talk a lot about this at the training. There's a lot of flexibility in the sib shop model so that some organizations will offer their sib shop, you know, one Saturday a month or one Saturday every other month. Kindering um, here in uh, Washington State. Um, we offer them on Friday nights uh, throughout the school year. Sometimes an organization that has a trained facilitator, they might do a program during the year and some kind of SIB camp. So like a week-long camp or maybe it's a few days a week for a few consecutive weeks. There's really a lot of flexibility in the model. What we ask is that people who are trained and who are certified and who offer something called a SIB shop really ensure that that program upholds the our best practices, which we call the SIB shop standards of practice. And those, you can actually find them on our website if you're curious and want to kind of know what those look like. But they're really our best practices to ensure a parent sending a child to something called a SIB shop, they're sending them to a program that is aligned with our model and really grounded in our mission and values. So the basic idea is we have sort of five tenets that are upheld. And one is to make sure that brothers and sisters have a chance to um, to meet one another, to share information and support. There, there needs to be, of course, uh, opportunities for fun. And then there's also, you know, there's an educational aspect as well that, you know, just by offering a SIB shop, a facilitator will be promoting awareness of siblings and sibling issues because they are going to be reaching out to parents that they support. They're going to be reaching out to their colleagues and they're going to say, hey, we're doing this great SIB shop and let me tell you why. And and by the way, I think that your kiddo would be perfect to attend because a lot of times parents, and you can maybe validate this, or I don't know if you've thought about this, but a lot of times parents will have kind of a hesitation because they'll think, well, gosh, why would I need my my other child to receive supports? Like my other child is great. My other child is a straight A student. They have lots of friends. They play sports. You know, why would they need to go to a sib shop. And I always kind of joke like, oh no, those are <laughs> those are the ones we need to worry about because totally. you know, a lot of times siblings uh, there is we know from the research kind of a pressure to achieve for many siblings and not, you know, not entirely across the board, but we know, you know, we we look at trends and that is a very common experience for many siblings, this pressure to achieve and to sort of compensate maybe for the limitations of the other sibling and it can be really reassuring to be able to be in a space with other brothers and sisters who not only get what it's like to have a sibling who's I'm using air quotes here, you can't see, but air quotes, who's different, right? <laughs> Who might be getting a larger piece of the pie at home in terms of time and attention of the parents. Uh, you know, we all have limited time and attention and there, there might be a perception and it might be 
a really accurate perception that, yeah, that other kiddo requires a lot of time and attention that isn't available for the other brothers and sisters at home. It can be very, very reassuring to be in a room with people who can relate to all of that. But then also to just come and do fun activities and be a kid. It can be a really positive, positive support for for young brothers and sisters. Yeah, I bet there's like an early sense of independence. And like you said, overachieving that happens with these siblings. And it's probably a little bittersweet. It is indeed. Sometimes you meet some of these little ones that are so wise, like just wise beyond their years. And we see it in sub shops all the time. They have such insight on things like, you know, what does it mean to be a friend? You know, is a friend someone who makes fun of your brother? Or is is a friend someone who maybe it's not even your brother, but maybe it's, you know, uh, the equipment manager on the football team who has special needs? Is your Is your friend that's someone who's going to make fun of that person. And, you know, they're amazing, these these young kiddos. But sometimes, yes, you just kind of give them a little hug and say, you know what? It's okay to be seven because you're seven. <laughs> the ones that are, who are seven going on 17. Uh, you know, you just want to encourage them to enjoy every moment of their childhood and to really, really kind of let themselves off the hook sometimes and let them know that they don't need to be perfect, that they're, they're unconditionally loved. Um, and just small gestures that parents can make uh, can go really a long way. That's definitely one of my questions. What can we as parents do to make sure that we're balancing this sort of attention that we're giving to both of our children? Yeah, so I think that there are a few really simple things that parents can do. And the good news here is that a little goes a long way. The first I would say is to We talked a little bit about it earlier to make sure that parents are providing siblings with age-appropriate information from a variety of sources. So this could be books. It might be sharing uh, like the website of the agency that supports their other kiddo. There's so many great now children's books and even movies out there that, that talk about disability issues and even sibling experiences. So I think the first thing is just to make sure that kids have accurate information, particularly with school-age kids. They really need to have information about the disability to be able to explain it to themselves and to other kids who might not ask questions in the nicest of ways, right? We know that kids can be not always so nice. For little uh, little kids, so for preschoolers, um, for example, it's really important that they have age-appropriate information. And we have to remember that that young, young children, they understand disability um, in terms of routine, right, and observation. Uh, And so, you know, the definition of cerebral palsy for a four-year-old might be, you know, the lady, she comes to my house and she brings this big ball and my sister gets to roll around on it and she learns how to walk. And so, you know, for a four-year-old, like that's a pretty good definition. That's a good working definition, right? Because you can build on that as that child gets older and their understanding of the world becomes more sophisticated. And so that providing information needs to be ongoing. And as I said, just, just to leave an open door for that child to ask questions um, is so, so important. Yeah, especially since they're going to be getting questioned and they need to have some sort of lay of the land that they can respond to without feeling anxiety about it. Absolutely. You know, some parents we know, they um, parents of children on the autism spectrum, they they choose not to use the A word with their kids, right? But we, we respectfully disagree with that because we think it can be really empowering for a child to be able to say in response to these questions that their peers might be asking, oh, well, my, you know, my brother has autism. Because, you 
you know, most of us know at least a little bit something, right, about what that means just because of all of the attention that autism has garnered over the past certainly decade or so. So that can be kind of relieving to put a stop to those questions, you know, with a, a single word <laughs> can be a really big help. So I think that information is key. I think providing siblings with opportunities to meet other siblings is really important. And sib shops are a great way to do that. We have a directory of sib shops on our website. You can search by state to find one near you. But you know, they're not the only way. As I mentioned, on the pages of books, online, maybe you're the agency that serves your kiddo with a disability. Maybe they have a buddy walk or some kind of agency picnic, that's a really good opportunity to carve out some time for siblings to meet each other as well. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I bet they make some of their most lifelong friends at things Absolutely. like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kids who know what Absolutely. they're going through. It's funny. I joke. I say, oh, you put you put a few siblings around a table and it's amazing what happens. During our training on the second day, we do a demonstration sib shop. A lot of times the kids don't know each other. They have never met one another before. And by lunchtime, these kids are best buds. You know, they're all sitting together, they're <laughs> chatting away, and there's just something that is so magical about watching that unfold. I love that. So how old do the kids need to be to join one of the sib shops? Typically, they're for kids age 8 to 13. 8 to 13. Okay. There are sib shops around the country that are sort of uh, changing that a little bit, especially now we have a lot of teenagers who have kind of grown up through sib shops and now they're in the wonderful world of adolescence. I say that mostly sarcastically. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it can be a wonderful time. You know, they're modifying their programming to serve older kids and, and sometimes they'll support the kids who are slightly younger than that. Mm, yeah, I think that's really important to help keep a little net around those teens. Yeah, for sure. You know, the other thing I would say to parents, I think this is really, really important, not only to think about open communication and really listening and using the principles of active listening, I think is so important. Uh, if folks have not heard of or read the book, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk by Adele Faber, it's a very accessible, easy to read book that I think is very impactful in teaching the principles of active listening, which is basically like... The less we say and the more we listen, the better. <laughs> That's like a total oversimplification. But, you know, we recognize that by listening, problems can't always be solved. And, and kids don't always need to have their problems solved. A lot of times they just need to be heard. And we experience this in sib shops all the time, that we'll do an activity, a discussion activity, where siblings are able to express the, the good, but also the not so good parts of having a sibling with a disability. And just being able to say it out loud and to be supported in saying it can go such a long way. Yeah, validating so their feelings through their experience of having kids with disabilities I can imagine, are obviously so important. Absolutely. And then finally, you know, I would say um, I have a few more tips for parents, but I think a really important one and the one that sh should be the most uplifting, I think, is not going to sound uplifting when I first say it, but I would encourage parents to set aside special time with their typically developing children. And the reason I say it's not going to sound uplifting when I first say it, it's because I can't think of one single person I know who feels like they have enough time in the day to do all the things they want to do. Uh, if you know that person, I would love to meet them and figure <laughs> out how they do it. <laughs> this is where I say, like, the great news is with siblings, a little goes a long way. And so, you know, honestly, for me growing up, it was a 15-minute car ride on a Friday afternoon with my mom in the car, just the two of us to pick up dinner. 
and a 15 minute car ride back home. And during that 30 minutes a week, we would talk about nothing or everything or whatever in between. And it was just a great time that I had my mom's undivided attention, except for the road, of course. Hopefully she was (laughs) also paying attention to that. I have heard a lot of siblings say that, you know, 15 minutes at the end of the day, especially young siblings, 15 minutes at the end of the day after their brother or sister has gone to bed, just that 15 minutes with mom or dad or both of having their undivided attention to, again, talk, not talk, do a puzzle, uh, whatever it is, that can go such such a long way. I love that. It's amazing how much grace that kids who grow up in families like this have at such an early age. It's really amazing. They're, they're pretty amazing kids. So... Have you noticed any type of theme with these kids once they reach adulthood and they go off to get a career? Have you found that most of them kind of end up being in some sort of compassionate field like you because you had a sibling with a disability or is it sort of random? So, well, what we know from the research is that, yes, much of the time, siblings do go into helping professions. And I always joke, I would have no idea what that is all about, right? <laughs> uh, Miss Miss Sib Shop these days. But yes, yeah, so we know from the research that typically vocation is kind of one of the perks that, that siblings identify based on their experience with their brothers and sisters that they felt really drawn to a helping profession that gives them a lot of gratification. Siblings who don't go necessarily into helping professions just based on sort of, I guess, anecdotally and having met uh, many, many siblings over the years, I find that we just can't seem to help ourselves, That, but we find some way to give back. <laughs> we just, maybe it's not professionally. So, you know, maybe it's uh, an accountant who donates their time to do uh, the taxes at no cost for people with disabilities who might work, for example. In that sense, across the board, because a lot of those folks feel like, nope, thank you. I have enough of that growing up. I'm going to go do something totally different. I'm going to go be an accountant. But as I said, many of us just can't seem to stay out of our own way in terms of helping people. (laughs) Thank goodness. (laughs) Emily, I am so happy to have met you. And I can't wait to chat with you further about many little offshoots of the work that you do. I'm just so grateful that you're in this field and Seattle and Kindring and all of us in the disability community are so lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm so glad that you made time for this conversation. And I really just um, can't say enough about all of the parents and professionals who take the time to reach out to us thinking about siblings and really considering their experiences and needs because I do think it's an often overlooked population and oftentimes people will ask me well what do you do for a living and I'll, I'll explain it and you know once I explain the similarities that siblings experiences have to parents experiences and once I explain that siblings now are becoming really the next generation of caregivers it's like a little light goes off people say wow I never considered that before but yeah that is a really deserving population to work with I just I'm really grateful when people recognize that it's huge (laughs) it's so amazing So thank you again. And thanks for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. We have so much more to cover in the future, and I hope to stay connected with you. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people, and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.